Today's sermon text is Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So I have an important question for you, one that I think is is quite revealing, uh, should be to you about yourself and that is this question what do you think about when you think about God so when you think about this idea of of God what first comes in your mind in terms of descriptions or ideas what, what do you what do you think about you know, A.W. Tozer asked this question as probably one of the most important questions you'll ever answer as it reveals uh, your own soul to yourself. What do you think about when you think about God? What are the words that come to mind? His argument continues on where he says, no people, no culture, no society has ever progressed beyond their own conception of God. In other words, you, no people, no church, no person can ever progress beyond their own understanding of God. So the Greek religions, God's are immoral, they're unjust, they're capricious, they're fickle. And so you tend not to go beyond your own conception of God. Or if your conception of God is holy and righteous and just, uh, then you're going to reflect that. So, so what is your ideas about God? What do you, what do you think God is like? You know, many of us really struggle to define uh, very far into a conversation what we think God is like. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says that most of us go by hunch on what God's like. We have a hunch that he is like this or that. We don't look at what he reveals about himself, but we just kind of think, well, I think God is like this, or I I think God is like that. Well, you know, we're here just on the eve of this election. Normally, I preach on God and country or citizenry and our responsibilities and the like, but I'm going to pivot and just talk to you about um, the nature of God. I, I, think it, I think understanding who God is will bring about a peacefulness and a stability and a faithfulness to us, uh, especially in very turbulent times. So we're going to look for the next three weeks at the characteristics of God, just some of them, his goodness, his sovereignty, and his wisdom. We're going to look at his goodness today, just God being good, Uh, I think most of us are quick to say God exists and God's powerful, uh, but we often doubt his very goodness. It may be calamity or distress or unanswered prayer that you begin to think, well, maybe God's not so good. Uh, But I want to show you that, in fact, he reveals himself to be good, very good. And I'm going to do it each week. um, I'm going to ask three questions. What is God like? Where do we see it, and how do we respond to him? So what is he like, and where do we see him in this way, and then how do we respond to him? Beginning with God is good. So what's God like? Well, I say God is good. 
We see it in Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For He is good. That's what it says. Now, many Christians will say, God's good, and then someone almost reflexively says, all the time. Well, I think those, both those things are true. I just don't think we fully believe it. Because we never say that God's good when things are bad. So what does it mean to say that God is good? To say that God is good, you know, good is really, it's a moral quality. There's an excellence to it, a virtue to it, a piousness to it. There's a perfection to it. To say that God is good means that his, he is morally perfect. He's benevolent. He's kind. Everything about him and everything he does is good. It would receive your approval. It would be admirable. It would be the way to go. And this is how God chooses to reveal himself. He reveals himself as good. It's interesting. And when you look at the New Testament, we're coming up to Advent, and we'll be looking at the incarnation, the coming of Christ. That is the greatest, revolution, the greatest revelation of Christ. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus Christ. He's the perfect representation. Jesus, in every way, perfectly reveals God to us. But in the Old Testament, it's interesting that the greatest revelation that we have of God, where God chooses to unveil, he pulls back the curtains. He says, this is who I am. He does it in Exodus 33. This is when Moses was about to lead the people in the promised land. He had led them out of the uh, slavery in Egypt. And he wants to know who God is. He wants to know that his character is firm and fixed and right and good. And so he says in Exodus 33, 19, he says, uh, please show me your glory. So Moses is asking God, say, show me who you are. Show me who you are at the very essence of your core. Who are you? And this is what the Lord says to him. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, I'm going to let all my power pass before you. I'm going to let all my greatness pass before you. I'm going to let all my majesty pass before you. He says, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. And then God passes before him. In chapter 34, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God in all of his goodness. It, it, it's marked by mercy and grace. It's marked by slow to anger. He's patient. He is loving, and he is just. And Thomas Manton was an English divine in the 17th century. And he wrote this, he said, He is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is. All creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He's originally good. It's not derived. It's intrinsic to him and only him alone. He says that he's infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop but in God there's an infinite ocean of gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good. He cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition to him and there can be no subtraction to him. This is the goodness of God. I do believe this. If, you were to, if someone was to ask you, what do you think God is like? Would you come out and just say, he's good. He's good. 
I, I think this is a struggle for us. I really think we, we struggle seeing the goodness of God. I think a lot of times people think, well, it's you know, the existence of evil which causes the greatest kind of apologetical question. I don't think so. I think it's seeing God is really good. This is what we see at the first events in human creation. Right? We see this first couple, our first parents, struggle with the goodness of God. Uh, there they are, uh, created, very good, in the garden, they come to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent or Satan is there. We don't know his origins. We're not told. But we see his strategy. He introduces the question, did God really say you can't eat from this tree? He's kind of implying a kind of stinginess with God. Did he really say that? He wouldn't let you eat from this tree? Implying as if God's not good, as if God's holding something back. You can't really trust him. He's got some shadows there. He's holding something good that you need and you really should have. Now remember the context in Genesis, uh, all through the first couple chapters, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. It was good of God to give us his image, that we are imaging him, we are made like him. It was good of God to give him all the other trees, that all their joy was wrapped up in that garden. And yet that question comes along and did he really say that? I mean, is that what he's about? He's not, is he really good? So the eating of the fruit was just the outward act of rebellion. It was the inward heart that began to distrust the very goodness of God that caused all of the ruination that we struggle with. This doubting, this trouble that we have with, with really seeing God is good. Now we don't see, we don't have a problem seeing ourselves as good. That's kind of the irony. You know, when you fast forward to Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 10, do you remember the story this rich young man comes up to Jesus? And he says, good teacher, uh, tell me how must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus stops, and it's really kind of interesting. He looks at him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why would he say that? But Jesus is correcting the man, right? He's correct. This man has this impression. He's looking at Jesus, seems like a nice man. He's probably a good man, has no idea who he's talking to, uh, other than maybe a prophet, maybe a teacher, but he applies a goodness to him. He thinks himself good. He's going to tell us in just a few moments about all the commandments he kept from his youth up. In other words, it's our own, it's our own blindness, thinking we're so good that blinds us to actually seeing how good God is. We have trouble seeing the goodness of God because we're so captivated by ourselves. And yet Paul seems to want to kind of wake us, you know, like the smelling salts to your nose, to wake us, to get a, a right impression of who God is. We'll never understand God fully if we can't really come to understand ourselves fully. So Paul helps us get there. In Romans chapter 3, he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not your grandmother. Not Mother Teresa. No one does good. In, in relationship to God, no one does good. Do you believe this? Do you believe that we can be that bad? Do you really believe that any goodness you have is a derived goodness, that it's come to you from God? If you really did, it would cause you to think differently on God, would it? Only God would be good. 
I mean, it, it, it's kind of a wake-up call for us. As a staff, we're reading this book by David Pallison, Speaking the Truth in Love. And it's in the context of counseling, how you counsel people. And, and he has a chapter in there where one of the subtitles is Facing the Truth About Ourselves. It's hard to face the truth that we, in relationship to God, are not good in and of ourselves. It's hard. But let me plead with you. It is the beginning of true health and happiness. Because we finally come to understand he alone is able to save. We don't need help in this life. We need, we need massive renovation. We need to be born again. We need to be remade. We can't be improved upon. It's a faulty foundation. You can put a beautiful eye. It's going to crumble. We need to be remade. We need to go to God because God alone is good. I hope you see this. You know, in the beginning of um, the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude, kind of we call it the gatekeeper to the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to have this poverty of spirit, recognizing I can't do it on my own. And if we began to realize that about us and realize that about each other, can you imagine how it would change our marriages? How it would change our relationships with people who are struggling? It would just change us. Because we go to God now as the one refuge that can bring hope and healing and goodness to us. So what is God like? He's good. He's so good. He's absolutely good, originally good, immutably good, infinitely good. But where do we see it? Where do we see this goodness? You know, in Psalm 119, 68, David says, you are good and you do good. You are good, and you do good. And that makes sense to us. Character does lead to conduct. And so if the character of God is that good, then he should do good. And we see that he actually does a lot of good. We see it in creation. I've already pointed out to you that when creation, when he created, he said, it was good, it was good, it was good. He created the man and the woman. He said it was very good. We see God's goodness in us. He has given us life. None of us are self-created. None of us are self-determining. You didn't know where you'd be born, when you'd be born, how tall you would be when you grew up. You didn't know the color of your skin. You didn't know the gender. These are not human constructs. These are not human inventions. God has given you life right now. You live because God has created you. I mean, we are his creation. He has made us good. We bear his image. Not just has he given us life, though. Think about the sweetness that he attends to us with life. Just taste alone. You have 10,000 taste buds in your mouth. They replace every other day. You taste what's sweet and what's sour. You taste what's bitter. You, you, temperature is determined. He didn't need to do that. I mean, a lot of creation has no taste buds. They don't get to, they don't get to taste the sweetness of an orange or or a piece of chocolate, or get to distinguish the sweets and the sours in the same meal. I mean, that's just kind of them. I mean, we love to eat, don't we? I mean, I look forward to Christmas just for the food. Why? Because I get to taste so many things. It's the kindness of God. Do you realize every time you eat something, God is being good to you to let you enjoy it like that? You could just be like the animal of the farm that just sticks his head in the trough and gobbles it down to sustain himself and has no joy in it. But you do. I do. The goodness of God is smells. I mean, to, to walk in and have the turkey cooking all day long. 
what happens. Your mouth begins to water. Your stomach begins to move. An apple pie. Well, why is that? Well, God's good. Or the sights that you see. I mean, the mountains and the pastures, the valleys, the stars. You know, Carol and I have a couple times gone with uh, the grandkids to Ashboro Zoo to see their little faces when they see this huge zebra, right? Big black and white stripes. Or to see the long neck of the giraffe eating some branch way up in the tree. I mean, there's just, wow, they're filled with delight. You know, or the gracefulness and the, and the power of a polar bear, or the ease was, with which an otter just glides through the water as if it's just gliding through thin air. God has done this. He's good to us. This is why in Psalm 33, 5, he says, the earth is full of the goodness of God. And yet we live in a theater of his goodness and we just walk along like it's, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. He's good to us. But not just in creation, in the sustaining of creation. Right now, folks, you are breathing because he is being gracious to you. We're living. He's given you gifts and traits and talents and desires. He's given you interests. He's given you opportunities. He's given you relationships and friendships. What do you have that you have not received? Paul asks the Corinthian church. It doesn't James says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above? He's given us all these things. The interests that you have, the abilities that you have, whether it's in art or in science or in business, the, these different things that you have, they've been given to you because God is good. But not just creating and sustaining. He gives us but the patience of God. Or the mercy of God in your life. You know, these things are attributes of God as well, actually. But there is goodness infused in his patience. Think about his patience with us. How long did he endure with your arrogance of ignoring him with your life until you turned and repented? He endured with you. He didn't need to. He could have just taken you out right there. But he endured with you, calling to you patiently that you might repent and return to him. Or, or, the, or the mercy of God when you've appealed to him in times of trouble and he's answered you. And he's graced you with deliverance in times of misery. He's good to us. All his attributes are just infused with goodness. You see, he's good. He's even good to us in our dark providences. I know you've been waiting for this one. Is he good in this? You know, the, the trials, the the hard marriage from which there's no seeming relief, the chronic illness, the wayward child that just doesn't seem any closer to turning, the acute loneliness of which there's no hope in sight. Is God good there? Well, you know, this raises up the question of the goodness of God and, and the existence of evil, which has always been a theological dilemma. I can't answer all the uh, issues and objections about it. I would say that the existence of evil is related to human agency, not caused by God, but related to our involvement with God in this world. And here's what I would submit to you, uh, that God, instead of just snuffing out evil, he uses evil and the badness of life. Like a craftsman pulling out a tool from his toolbox, he, he wields it to cause evil to work to the good. He causes it to move forward 
beneficial or benevolent purposes, ultimately. So you have the story of Joseph. You know that story. Uh, Joseph is one of many sons of Jacob. He's loved deeply by his father and therefore envied by his brothers. And when his brothers have the opportunity, they want to dispense with him, and they do. He ends up being sold into slavery, and they left him for dead. Well, through a series of events which we see God's hand just in the distance, he rises up to the second in charge in Egypt. Well, God would have it so that their paths would cross. Those brothers that did him great evil, and they met, met up with Joseph again. Well, Joseph reveals himself as their brother. They didn't know him. He was dressed in Egyptian garb, speaking uh, the Egyptian language, and he reveals himself to them, and they think their end is sure. He's going to return the favor. And here's what he says to them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Do, do you see, Joseph sees that this existence of evil doesn't disqualify the presence of God. God uses it to achieve his purposes, which he did do. This is, I think, what Paul's driving at when he says in Romans chapter 8, 28, we know this, that all who love God and are called according to his purposes, that all things will work together for good. Not, not good. All things are not good. Cancer is not good. All things work together for good. Uh, they work under the sovereign hand of God to achieve good purposes, some of which we will not fully understand in this life. This is something that the Christian embraces by faith. Why? Because the character of God is good, so anything he does can't not be good. Even though we may not see it in its full bloom, we will. That doesn't mean that some nights aren't difficult. It doesn't mean that some times aren't hard and that you agonize over it and you plead. This is the nature and, and the purpose of the church that we can come together and help one another fight to have faith in the goodness of God when things are bad. But God is good even in his dark providences. Now, why would I be so bold to say these things? Well, because God has finally showed his ultimate goodness in the gospel. You know, you see, the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament is the Exodus, right? It's when God delivers the nation of Israel from bondage to slavery in Egypt. It, God says it clearly. I didn't do it because of, you know, your potential. I didn't do it because of your worthiness. I didn't do it because you know, you're so deserving of this deliverance. I, I did it because I'm good. I'm good, and I'm good to the covenant I made with Abraham. I'm going to save the people. I'm going to bring forth redemption of this world because I'm good. I'm kind. I'm benevolent. But that act of redemption was only pointing to a greater act, which is the coming of the Son. See, in the coming of Jesus, he was born like us. He was born under the law. We're crushed by the law, aren't we? You read the law, and you just meet opposition at every turn. You meet failure at every turn. The law crushes us. He goes under the law to redeem those under the law to deliver us and to give us full rights as sons and daughters. And Jesus has done this by his willingness to bear our sins, hang on a tree, be crushed by God, so that God could be both just and the justifier. 
of those who have faith in Christ, having faith in Christ, believing that he is the one that will deliver me from myself, basically. This was good of God. So is it a surprise to us as we approach Advent and we consider at one point the words of the angels, the words to the shepherds, remember what they say? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and what? Good will to men and women. He will do good to them. And he has perfectly in Christ. This is why we have the confidence in the character of God that even in the midst of dark providences, he's good. Many of you know the name of George Mueller. You know, George Mueller is a German descent, but English pastor in the 18th century, in 19th century. He was a pastor and evangelist. He was also, you know, probably him caring for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. Well, he saw the goodness of God, even in dark providences, of his wife dying. So his wife Mary, they married over 39 years, ministering together. Uh, she's dying of rheumatic fever. And he prays this prayer. He says, yes, Father, my time. Yes, my Father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou, thou wilt do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise up yet again my precious wife. Thou art able to do it, though she is so ill, but howsoever you deal with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with your holy will. Help me to be satisfied in your goodness. Well, she died. She died. And he preached her funeral. And the text from which he preached was Psalm 119, 68. You are good, and you do good. He had three points to his sermon. He said, you are good, and you do good in giving her to me. And he said, second point was, you are good, and you do good in leaving her with me for so long. And the third point was, you are good and you do good in taking her from me. This is trusting that God is good. God is good. Do you believe he's good? I mean, do you see the goodness in creation? Do you see the goodness in the sustaining of your life? Do you see his goodness in, in the mercy and the grace and the patience? Do you see the goodness even in dark providences? Do you see the goodness in the gospel? You know, this goodness of God, it leaves us without any wiggle room about believing in God. There's no excuse. Paul picks up this idea. God has displayed these attributes through what we see. You know, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he says, what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to us because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his goodness, he says namely his eternal power, divine nature, but all these attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You see what this does is it paints us in a corner. This is why I repeatedly say to you, disbelief is not evidential. It's not like we're lacking for evidence over the goodness of God. You can look at your own families and you see he's been kind to you. So disbelief is never evidential. It's always moral. We don't want to believe. 
we don't want to believe for many reasons. It may impact our lives because we don't want to make the adjustments that we'll need to make now that we, we bring in a sovereign creator into our lives. We may not want to change the immoral lifestyle we have. And with God comes a beautiful morality. But it's not evidential. It's we don't want to believe. I, I, I hope this leaves you without excuse. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I hope you can say, yeah, I do see the goodness of God. Well, I turn to him by faith. So, so what is God like? He's good. And where is it seen? I would say everywhere. So what do we do? What do we do with this goodness of God? What, what are you walking out to do? Well, well, first, can you at least be grateful with me? Let's appreciate God together. That's what the psalmist is saying in verses 1 and 2. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, let the redeemed say so, uh, the redeemed whom he has delivered. Let the redeemed say so, that's us, the redeemed. Those by faith in Christ, let us say he is good. Let us say it. If you read the rest of the psalm later on today, you'll just see example after example of, of his goodness and gives us a basis and all kinds of examples as to why we give thanks that we want to we wanna give thanks, but we don't want to just give thanks for the things. We want these things to lead us to the giver of the things. We want to love God. Our gratefulness isn't just expressing thank you for this and this and this and this, but to thank him for, for him. In other words, there's to be a growing affection in us to God over these various attributes. So Stephen uh, Charnock was a uh, English divine at the same time in the 17th century. And here's what he wrote about this distinction. He wrote a book on the attributes of God. He says, to love God only for his benefits is to love ourselves first and him secondly. To love God for his goodness and his excellency. That's a true love of God. To love him. That, that's what it's about. Appreciating him. You know, maybe this is a point of repentance for us. You know, maybe we need to stop and just say, God, you've got to forgive me. I have been ungrateful. I've been, I've, been, I've, been, I've been walking with ingratitude. I've been careless about all that you've done for me. I've ignored it. Maybe, maybe it hasn't been intentional for you. Maybe it's more like me. I just get lazy. I get lazy, and I'm walking around in the theater of his glory, and I forget who did it all, or, or even living with Carol. You know, she's been good to me for so long that you begin to forget about the good things she does. And you know what? You just end up not saying a lot. Does this happen in our marriages? Uh, the, the, the wife to the husband, the husband. You, you've just served each other for so long that we stop being grateful to one another for those acts of kindnesses and courtesies that we don't want to forget about. We do it horizontally. We do it vertically. So let's be more grateful. In, in fact, I would say just let's not just be grateful to God, but grateful to the goodness of God in other people. We used to do this when the kids were younger. We've maybe gotten away from it a little bit uh, as the kids have gotten older. But, but we go around the room at their birthday and give thanks to God for them. That's what we're trying to do here. To not give thanks to God for the goodness we see in the people around us is to deny God worship. We want to give thanks to God for that. And it actually causes us to really enjoy them even more. So, so let's appreciate the goodness of God, both not just in creation, but in those around us. And then secondly, and this is going to be a little bit of a twist for you, but I'm going to ask you to contemplate the severity of God. 
I want to cut. You're like, where are you going left here or going into severe? We're we're leading into grateful land and now you go into severe land. Well, Paul puts them together in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, 22, he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So Paul's talking about this Jewish and Gentile dynamic here. Uh, the, the Gentiles had heard the gospel and they came to faith. They responded to this act of kindness that led them to repentance. And the Jewish people at the time who heard the gospel did not believe. They'd fallen. They were cut off. They're going to experience the severe judgment of God. And there's a warning. What he's saying is that behind every act of kindness, there is the reality of judgment when that kindness is ignored. Isn't that frightening? These acts of kindness are meant to draw us to repentance and reconciliation with God. And when those are ignored, therein stands our judge and our judgment. That we are fully guilty of neglecting such a mercy. That's what he says in chapter 2. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So those of us who have experienced the kindnesses of God, there is a purpose to that kindness, which is to lead you to himself as good, to be reconciled, to be saved. Think about uh, the years that I ignored his kindness. It called to me, and I was arrogant and ignorant, flaunting the freedoms that I lived in, doing what I wanted to do, and he was just patient with me. Patient. He's patient with me when I, when I sin even now. He's kind to us. I don't want to miss this kindness and severity. You know, we see it in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I remember quoting this to you years and years ago, and you know the story. Uh, these four children kind of discover a magical world through a wardrobe, and uh, they find in this world it's cold, and uh, they, they happen into it, and they come upon the, the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. That's a, a magical world with fantastical characters, and he begins to explain to them about this Aslan, this Christ figure who is on the move and uh, he is coming to deliver from the oppression of this wicked witch. And when he describes Aslan as a, as a lion, uh, one of the children say, is he safe? And the, Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe but he's good. He's he's good to us. But there's a severity to the kindness that we do not want to just look casually over his kindnesses. That's the warning. And then the third thing I would ask you to consider, appreciate it, give gratitude to God for his kindnesses, Contemplate the severity of it to wake us up. And then third, trust in his goodness, particularly in these changing times. So we have an election here in a couple days. Over uh, close to three quarters of this nation is concerned over the unrest that will come upon this election. Uh, 
changing times we're living in, no doubt about that. <clears throat> Many people are pinning their hopes on a candidate. And they're pinning their hopes on a candidate, and it's more than just a presidency. And many of us are seeing one or the other candidate is actually saving our culture. No human leader should bear that. Shouldn't do it. I'll go so far as to say that when you consider the goodness of God, it almost, and I'm going to nuance this in a minute, it almost makes politics irrelevant. He is a good God. He's a sovereign God. He is going to be good to his people. He can't do otherwise. It almost makes it. Now, I'm not calling for passivity in terms of your citizen responsibilities. I'm just calling you to be actively trusting in this sovereign goodness of God come Tuesday, Wednesday, and the weeks to come. That's where our trust and our hope should be locked in him, regardless of the outcome of this election. We will gather together next week and we will rejoice in God regardless of what the elections will come. I understand the temporal implications of both candidates. I get it. At the end of the day, I'm looking at ultimate matters here of which we're part of this eternal kingdom, part of this ultimate reality. We want to find our trust in the, in the goodness of God. God will be good to us. He will be good to us. So we see what is God like? He's good. Where do we see it? I would say everywhere, but particularly in the gospel. How do we respond to him? Well, let's appreciate him. Let's be grateful on Wednesday. We're still going to rejoice in God because he's still good on Wednesday, regardless of what happens. I don't care uh, either party. Let's rejoice. So we rejoice. We contemplate the severity. We, we, we think seriously on his kindnesses and then we're going to put our trust in him. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy to us. <clears throat> you have been good to us. We sang it. We're going to put our hope in you. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? When we consider the work of your heavens, the stars, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, and you consider us, well, we want to consider you. We consider you great. We consider you good. Father, give to us as your people a heart that just rejoices over the goodness that you have given to us in Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.